Hi, welcome to I Wanna Change the World. I'm your host, Janae Gilmore. That thought, I wanna change the world, has been a guiding force behind so many decisions in my career and in my life in general. But what does it actually look like for me, or anyone really, to change the world? On this podcast, you'll hear about my ongoing journey to figure out my place in creating a better world. As you listen, I invite you to reflect on yours. Let's get ready to change the world together. Hi, and welcome, or welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to episode 21. If you've had a chance to check out any recent episodes, you know that I've been in a series called I Want to Change the World, dot, 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 So I Moved to Africa. That series has been great space for me to unpack my own experience of being here in Ghana for my sabbatical life reset thing that I'm doing. And it's also been a great opportunity for me to be in conversation with some fascinating people whose own journeys of living into this question of what does it mean to make a difference in the world has led them to the continent. Moving forward, you might still hear me sporadically doing an interview or sharing reflections specifically around that topic. But today I'm actually looking to transition into another series, a series that I'm calling Do-Gooder School. So I'm now almost eight months into my sabbatical. And slowly but surely, I am starting to ask myself, what's next career-wise? I'm kind of at a crossroads. Do I want to go back into the nonprofit sector or somewhere else in the social impact world? Or do I want to try working in the private sector? In theory, I could just apply for a bunch of stuff and see where I land. But I think you know me well enough by now to know that I'm going to put a little bit more thought and intentionality into how I approach this. So to explore these questions that I have after 10 years of working in the nonprofit sector, a whole master's degree in inequalities and social science, countless volunteer hours, plus hours writing, thinking, and reading about both social issues and career stuff, I'm taking myself back to school. In do-gooder school, I get to ask myself, do I need to be a professional do-gooder to feel like I'm really making an impact in the world? If I do go back into the nonprofit sector or in the social impact space at all, how can I do it in a way in which I maintain hope and a sense of joy in the work and minimize the amount of time that I spent feeling cynicism How can I show up as bravely and boldly as some of the people who I've admired most in this work? So to dig into all of these questions and more, I'm launching the series. And even though it's totally a coincidence, it's absolutely perfect that I'm starting it off by talking to someone from my alma mater. So I'm taking myself back to school and kind of going back to school. Dave Coles joined me for episode 20. And there he shared his hard-won lessons learned about do's and don'ts for doing good. There we talked a lot about his experience in Ghana. In this episode, though, we focus on his role as volunteer center manager at LSC. I think what emerged from our conversation was a great primer on how to make volunteering both sexy and inclusive. So without further ado, here you go. Welcome back to the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you. 
So Dave is the manager of the LSE Volunteer Center, where he works at the nexus of students who want to go out and make a difference through volunteering and the nonprofits and social impact organizations that want to leverage these volunteers to do good work. So Dave, tell us more about what you do. Yeah, no, thanks so much for that introduction. Um, so yeah, no, you're absolutely right. We kind of sit in, in the middle between students and many hundreds of organizations who want to recruit LSE students as volunteers. Um, and our, our job is to inspire and empower LSE students to, to volunteer for causes which they're passionate about. And as I said, yeah, we kind of sit as that. And the main part of our work is a, is a brokerage scheme. So we've got like, you know, hundreds of organizations in on one side of a room and all these passionate students on the other side of the room, you know, wanting to, to create social change. And it's our job to try and connect them up in the best way possible. Put simply, so we have like a vacancy board, we run things such as volunteering fairs and get other charities onto campuses on campus to do talks and to have stalls. And I know in one of our previous conversations, we spent some time talking about sort of a falling in and out of love with the charity sector on a regular basis. And we'll, we'll go into that later. But can you just talk about, well, I guess basically the energy and the hope and optimism that must come out of a role where you're working with young people who are excited to dedicate their time to go out and change the world? Yeah, I've got a very, I'm very fortunate in the role that I have. I, I don't think I'd swap it for any other job at LSE. And I've been in this role for 12 years now, so maybe I wouldn't swap it for, for any other job either, it would appear. I mean, yeah, every single day in my job, I get to work with highly educated, highly motivated young people who really are passionate about making the world a better place. Um, now, obviously, there's many ways in which you can do that through like your career, through day-to-day -day habits through many other aspects as well, obviously through education and sharing your learning too. But obviously the, the sort of um, vehicle that I see it in is through volunteering. From my point of view, that is the very basics. Uh, volunteering is, is a gift of your time. And, and we all have limited amount of time, some, some more than others. But, you know, in reality, I think we could all, all wish we could have a few more hours in the week. Mm -hmm. um, and so if people are saying that, you know, for even if it's just one hour a week or two, three, four, I, I see students volunteering sometimes at 10 or 14 hours a week. Taking that to give to others is an incredibly special thing just in itself. And, I'm, and we see, I see, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of students doing that sort of week in, week out at LSE to fight for all these really, really important causes, both on a very local level, like right in, right in the centre of London where we are, right across the world as well. Um, and I think the other very like special thing about LSE, which which I'm sure you would have appreciated when you were there as well, is that you know we have so many people from, from so many different countries and communities around the world as well. So it, it creates like fantastic places for those conversations about what does help look like through volunteering or what does volunteering mean to different communities as well, which which I find endlessly fascinating too. Students come to you not only wanting to to do work locally in London, but also around the world. And we've had a chance to hear in the last episode about your own experiences as a volunteer going abroad. And so my question is, when students come to you wanting to serve, you know, ready to change the world, especially by going abroad or working in communities that are quite different from their actual background, what do you say to them about what it takes to be a good volunteer? 
And how do you help them try to avoid the pitfalls that maybe you fell into as a volunteer? That's a really good question. So I think I think to answer that question, I mean, I think it's probably a couple of different things to think about. First of all, like the first concept when we think about international volunteering is often people going from the global north to the to the global south. Well, that's a that's like a big part of the conversation which we think about in, in things of those power dynamics. Now, when when I'm at LSE, there's two different aspects to it as well. First of all, as I say, we have students who come to the UK from all over the world. And, and many of those people are from the global south. To, so for them, volunteering internationally is actually being in London mm. and then volunteering. So that first of all, you know, changes maybe that common conversation which exists around kind of international volunteering. It's not exclusively a flow from, of people from the global north to the global south, far from it. And secondly, when we think about when I think about international volunteering, obviously I'm relating to me going to a new country, but I might have an LSE student from India who's saying, I want to volunteer in India when I get back home. That's their mm. home country and their home community. So again, that's a different dynamic to that flow of people from the global north to the global south. So I think there's different things that I need to, first of all, work around in like me understanding the context of where that student is coming from and what they mean when they're having these conversations. So that's always that's always really important for me to do. And obviously in relation to the student as well, that's useful for me to be able to provide better questions or and or information for them. But normally if I was to have a conversation with a student or if I was running a seminar um, about how to start volunteering, there's normally like three really big questions that I would ask them to, to ask themselves as much as anything before we even got on to like, where do I look, how do I apply these, these types of things. First one is, what cause is it that you're passionate about? Now, most people can probably come up with like 10 or 15 or 20 things which they might want to change <laughs> the world about. Mm -hmm. um, and, that's, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. And it doesn't always have to just be one thing. But what is it? What is that cause where you, you wake up in the morning and you think, this is how I think the world can be a better place. And this is where I want to dedicate my time to. This is when it's raining on a Saturday morning and I've got to get out of bed and go and do this volunteering. You're going to push through that and actually go and do that. And again, you don't have to necessarily decide on absolutely one thing. But I normally come up say to people, you know, come up with a list of two or three things where you think, yeah, this is where I really want to dedicate my time to and, and get involved in this. So that'd be the first question. Second question would be more based around an activity. And what is it that you see yourself doing? You know, is it mentoring a child in a local school or is it doing a research paper exploring inequalities in, in education which you know both would be around helping children get a better experience mm -hmm. but what does that activity look like to you is it that you're really good at building websites are you a passionate fundraiser do you want to do advocacy work you know what are the types of things where you think yeah, again not only is the cause really important to me but i think this the actual activity that i'll be doing will be fun and interesting and worthwhile and, and a good use of my skills and, and experiences as well then I guess the final question, which sometimes is, is probably the most difficult to, to contemplate in some ways, but what is it that you want to achieve through your volunteering? And achievements are obviously very personal, and this can range from make, obviously making a difference, and I think most people would think that, but how do you know that you're going to have made a difference? What does that look like to you on a personal level? Now, for some people, going back to the previous example, it might be yeah, doing that research report that a school or a local government body can use to improve 
the education of 10,000 young people in London, let's say, for example. And for some, that might be like the perfect thing which they can do. Um, but for other people, I absolutely know that that sort of that, I guess, that behind the desk work, they don't see that. They can't feel that impact in the same way as when they mentored that single child to help them with their homework in the local school as well. So like, what does helping people look like to you? How are you going to know on your inside, in your heart, that you have helped people and give you that feeling um, that you've made a difference? But then, of course, achievements can range in many other ways as well. For You might want to practice your like public speaking skills because you think that's going to be useful or you want a better understanding of a particular activity. And we want to get experience to go you know, to further your human rights career as, as you move out of university, whatever it might be. So really thinking about those both those, I guess, like intrinsic and extrinsic parts of volunteering and how are you going to tick the right boxes that you want to achieve. And I often say to people, like, you need to have those, if possible, try and get those achievements out at the beginning so you can sort of plan to make mm. sure you're checking in with yourself and ticking those boxes later on as you do tick off some of those achievements that you've set yourself. I know that you yourself are still active in the volunteering space. You coach a women's soccer team. Can you talk about how you got into that? I love that you not only preach it, but you live it, <laughs> volunteering. Yeah, you know, we, we briefly touched on it, I think, in, in our last chat. But yeah, volunteering is a, a really big part of my life. I coach a women's football team, South London Laces, and they're an incredible example of, of the power of community through sport. I'm, I'm biased, but you know, I, I think they're the absolute blueprint for how um, how a community sports group should be run. And I, I got into, I mean, I've, I've always been passionate about football. You know, as I said before, like I went out to Ghana wanting to coach football and did that. And um, I coached at another club in, in London for, for about three or four years. And I took a little bit of a break from coaching. And funnily enough, the, um, the women's football club at LSE got in contact with me saying, you know, we're looking for a coach for the following season. Would you be interested? You know, we sort of had a meeting and had a good chat. And I was like, yeah, that'd be, that'd be really, that'd be really fun. And it, and it was, it was incredible. It gave me, first of all, like a really different understanding of the LSE experience. Because, you know, obviously I sort of do my job, but this gave me a very different angle about what the LSE experience and what students were going through. And I already had a, a, what I thought was a fairly good idea about the biases within football against gender or sorry against women through through gender and sort of the barriers that women face when wanting to participate in sport but this gave me obviously a much better at understanding and higher levels of empathy sort of coming back to that again about the barriers that women face when just wanting to play a sport just wanting to play football I mean this is just kicking a ball in a net like it's not <laughs> a, it's very simplistic at its most basic level but I saw straight away like one of the big arguments that happens during my time coaching at, at the women's football club at LSE was that the men's teams got priority of the best football pitches and that that was just a bit of a given mm. and understandably rightly so the women who ran the football club at LSE also wanted access to the best football pitches mm -hmm. um, but that that caused my players or the club they they fought for that and and they won um which was which was excellent but that instantly just gave me that i was like wow i didn't quite appreciate even you know at a university like lse you know big thinkers campaigning for a better world all those different types of things at that sort of level of just like basic discrimination still existed 
so I was fortunate I had three years coaching at LSE and then unfortunately um, when COVID came sort of the university league effectively shut for, for quite a long period of time and I, I didn't want to stop coaching and so I joined up with, with South London Laces and the club was initially set up by an LSE alum actually, um, a woman called Katie and when she was studying at LSE she used to play football about, it's about 12 years ago now and um, she used to walk home across Hackney and young women and young girls would see her in her football kit and be like, we want to play football. Can you like help us? We want to play football. And she was like, OK, well, I'll go and find you a football club. Like, let me just do some research. And then it turned out in Hackney, which is like sort of the centre of North London, there was no facilities for young women or girls to play football. So um, Katie, being, being the person that she is, set up a football club aimed at young women and girls in Hackney. And it was an incredible success. And that football club has now spawned into kind of four sister clubs. There's three in London and one in Manchester as well. And I'm involved in the one in, in South London and, and I coach one of the teams there. And the club has been very successful. You know, two years ago, we just had one squad or one team. And then this year, we now have four squads just because of the amount of women that want to play football. It's just growing and wow, growing okay. and growing. In the UK in particular, over the last few years, but again, I continue to sort of learn about how I can have an impact as a volunteer and still the, the sort of discrimination that people face within within the field of sport for, for how that works, particularly against women in football. One of the things, and I've mentioned this to you, that I've been reading about lately, so even though I'm on sabbatical and out of the, the realm of work, I'm still thinking about and processing my own experience um, working in the nonprofit sector and thinking about what I want to do in the future. What is it about our sector that I love? What is it about the sector that sometimes drives me crazy? <laughs> and we do fill a lot of, of needs and gaps. So going back to this, this conversation that we were having about falling in and out of love with the charity sector on a daily basis, which is something that you said <laughs> Let's unpack that for you. Like, what are your thoughts when you're thinking I'm in love with this sector? And what are your thoughts when you're falling out of love with the sector? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And I can, I can probably change my mind on a on an hourly basis sometimes <laughs> or, or have that paradox within me. Like you said, the charity sector, you know, and I'll speak mainly on like a UK basis now. It's obviously that's my best understanding. fills in so many gaps for people and does incredible campaigning and creates community where communities might need additional help and provide that support and I know so many fantastic people who are striving so so hard with such little resource to make lives better for every single person in the country and I genuinely believe that you know we think about charities where you know it might just be certain sections of the population that benefit from charities but I genuinely believe that that we all do and, and there's several reasons for that. First of all, most charities, lots of charities are aimed at everyone, first of all, so that we all benefit from that clearly. But I also think that, you know, a healthier, happier population, we all, like a rising tide brings up all ships. And so that makes a better a better place for all of us in society. And yeah, you know, as I said, like through LSE in particular, I get to work with lots of like small and medium sized organisations in particular see like the incredible work they're doing and the inspiring stories and the differences that they're making to lives every single day through through the work that they do so that's that's when I'm absolutely in love with the sector and um, 
maybe I'm feeling quite in love with the sector at the moment as a you know we've got 50 of them coming on to our volunteer fair in a couple of weeks and we've been sharing like, lots of interesting stories and volunteering opportunities and I'm really feeling that buzz of um, all the incredible work that they do so I think that at its basics is why I really love um, the charity sector and, and my colleagues in it so maybe that's maybe that's the easier part of the question to answer in some ways I guess maybe some of the problems I feel are maybe connected to some of the conversation that we had last time about unequal power dynamics and sometimes that lack of empathy and that might come often from I think the charity sector in the UK has an issue with people in it not reflecting those that they're looking to work with or support or serve and, and I think that's that's a really really big problem with within any within any industry but particularly the charity sector which is wanting to represent and speak for people and sometimes I see people that it almost looks like they're going to go and volunteer for people rather than with them or sometimes volunteer at them you know and seeing them as a project and seeing them as like a, if you're a refugee like that is your whole status you are a refugee when you know as you spoke about last time I think a little bit like people are 360 degree humans they have many many stories and many things that make them who they are we don't want to define them as a refugee or, or any other like label in that term that isn't who they are as a whole that's just a situation that they're in and I often see similar particularly with like the homelessness people at risk of homelessness as well so I think there is an issue with that about like the power dynamics within that and there are some some really amazing campaign groups in the UK actually one which has really come to prominence over the last couple of years in the UK is a campaign group called Charity So White and they're campaigning to make the sector much more representative and try and decouple itself from that, that institutional racism and obviously all of the all of the issues that that come with that and just to add a couple more points on that first of all I think one of the issues which which I might grapple with even like through volunteering is that often to get into the charity sector you need experience and one of the best ways to do mm -hmm. that is through volunteering mm -hmm. but to volunteer you do need that gift of time and you might often need that gift of money to support yourself whilst you're volunteering as well and so that often refers back to people from social economic backgrounds that can afford to do mm -hmm. that and have mm -hmm. the agency to create change in that way so that means when you when charities are doing interviews for jobs or looking for people to recruit understandably they want the people with the most experience so those are often people who have volunteered and had the time and agency to do that but that night that might not reflect the very best people or those that didn't have the time or ability to volunteer during their time of studies or during when they're working or, or whatever it might be so even just through that very basic or very simplistic explanation we're seeing that it's been segmented for certain people of the population to give access to these jobs and powerful opportunities within the charity sector which i feel is wrong secondly connected perhaps to you know kind of charity so white in particular and there's other campaign groups there's another one called charity so straight as well is that it would be very dangerous for the charity sector to think that it kind of sits outside all of kind of the, the structural injustices which sit within our society. You know, the charity sector is completely wrapped up in those as well. 
So I think it's I think we need to work even harder in the charity sector to try and decouple ourselves from those, or at least ask those difficult questions and be open to that criticism and look to make change within ourselves before we even look to make change for others within society as well. So sometimes it can feel like as we're doing our work, and I mean, I am using the charity sector or the nonprofit sector, like this broad label to describe work that can range from organizing symphonies or universities and communities to people who literally go door to door giving meals to senior citizens. So like it's, mm-hmm. it's a big, diverse industry. I'm thinking of those of us who do work that in some sense can feel like a Band-Aid fix to a gunshot wound. Like that's how I would describe it sometimes when I was doing my work. Somehow it was getting at immediate needs, but not touching the issues behind it. Now I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how we as individuals can help create deep systemic change, like the kind that minimizes the need for our jobs, for our sector. Like why do we need to deliver so many meals? Why do we need to have these different charities in the first place? How do we get at that? Yeah, I mean, that that's that's quite a question. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, I should say to start with, if, if I had that answer, then, um, <laughs> then we might have, we might have solved some things already. Um, but I, but, you know, I, I really, I really recognize, obviously, the premise of the question. And, you know, I, I feel like that, through lots of volunteering that I've done or lots of charities I've been involved with, like you say, like we're just, yeah, it's a sticking plaster. Maybe we're not doing much more than that. I think in some ways that's where, you know, seats of education such as LSE and other, you know, other universities all across the world can be really at the forefront of social change by like looking to learn that understanding and share that knowledge about how we can create systemic change um, across society. So that's also like, one of the things I find very interesting in my role at LSE as well. But, you know, I, I, I can absolutely recognise the divide between like the academic world and I put in sort of inverted commas, the real world as well. But I mean, something which I, I'd always say to like students, if they're looking to volunteer as well, is like, yeah, is this, is this just a sticking plaster? And what does that mean to you? Like, if you're okay to do that, that, you know, people do need help yeah, right yeah, now. Yeah, people need minute. help. Absolutely. And like, I don't think anyone's sort of suggesting that, okay, well, let's put a 10 year plan in place. You know, we ignore everyone for 10 years, we'll create better systems. And then we start again, in, you know, in a decade's time and just ignore everyone for now. Like they can just be, they can just be forgotten about. Like no, nobody's saying that. But I think it's an important thing for us as individuals to think about, yeah, what does that mean to us again? And that's why I said earlier, like, what does, what does that achievement look like to you? What does that making a difference mean? And those two examples I gave about kind of mentoring a child in a school, let's swap that out for yeah, serving serving an elderly person food, you know, dropping food at their house, or creating an advocacy report that pressurizes local government to ensure that that, that service isn't needed anymore. And you know, what does that look like to you on an individual basis? And how do you know that you're making a difference? So I think that's something that's a little bit of um, a personal feeling for people and, and where their skill set might lie and, and what they see as change. But I also know, you know, wonderful charities that are working in that area where they are looking to create systemic change and they're pressurizing people who have even more power, often those, you know, in politics, to, to create change that can be long lasting. And we've seen many successes of this over the years. 
you know, just in London, homelessness dropped to an extremely low level. You know, one person is too many, obviously, but it dropped to a very low level by about sort of 2010, 2012, maybe. Um, and then it's roughly like trebled in London over the last decade. And, you know, particularly when it comes to homelessness, that feels like an issue that lots of people, and I don't profess to be an expert in this, I should add, but lots of people have a, don't have much of an understanding at all. You see it. There's a very visceral thing of mm-hmm. people like rough sleeping. You see that and think lots of emotions of like, what, just get a job. You know, what, what does that mean? That can be, you know, a very obvious reaction or these people are in my way on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Like they're asking me for money. You know, those types of feelings can come out or a sense of pity can come out as well. But, you know, particularly in London, we've seen that number grow. And what I mean to get from that is it, it, can, it has been better. So it can be better again in some ways. And that means that we're in a bad position now, but we can create that change that for long, long lasting change, that means that people at risk of homelessness can be less. But it's obviously that's multifaceted that involves the private sector, public sector and the charity sector to work together in the best way possible. And, you know, I, I work in the in the charity sector and I think maybe the political sector has a little bit more to answer for, for that, mm-hmm. rather than just looking to the charity sector to answer it. But I do like your other part of the question about, you know, what does success look like for a charity and when should we look to shut down? And I'm actually on the board of another charity, like a health charity um, called Facial Palsy UK. And they, when I, in my first board meeting with them, they were really looking at their strategy and that was, that was the question I posed to them, like, when should we look to shut as a charity? Like, when has society significantly changed where we don't need to be here as a charity? And that is not a sign of failure. That's a sign of ultimate success of your organization that we don't need to be here. And that was a question maybe a couple of them have thought about before, but most of the people hadn't thought of that question in, in that meeting. And it, it, it definitely posed some different answers that we might not have got to before. So I think for lots of organisations, yeah, when should we look to shut down is an important question. And maybe that doesn't get spoken enough about in the charity sector either. Yeah. And then also the reality that for some organisations, until the revolution comes, (laughs) they they may just need to exist. So how do we rally together and support them? How, if at all, do you think it would be possible to reinvigorate the type of like, civic, communal, or neighborly spirit that in the past at times has brought people together to address a social issue like before or outside of sort of this nonprofit industrial complex? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, something, a challenge we're really seeing in the UK at the moment is that volunteering levels are currently at their lowest since records began. Roughly about over the last 15 or 20 years, we've seen much more like better data about like who is volunteering and when are they volunteering and, and how much. That data didn't really exist before, but currently it's it's pretty much at its lowest level. And there's a couple of, there's a few reasons for that, multifaceted as, as always. And the first one is that lots of older people didn't go back to volunteering after COVID. You know, in the UK, traditionally, the sort of retiree population, you know, over 65s were like one of the biggest segments of those that volunteer and lots of them didn't go back to volunteering after covid you know they had to stop during covid for for obvious reasons Uh and they didn't go back to it so that's seen a a big drop off in in volunteering and the second one again fairly fairly obvious is like the cost of living and economic crises which we face as societies but of course acutely 
as individuals, for many individuals, mm-hmm. means that again, people have less time because they're having to work harder and they have less money, which means that you're less likely to be able to have the capacity to volunteer in any way. And we've particularly seen that, you know, through my job. But for the first time ever, now a, a report came out saying that more university students have jobs, part-time jobs, than don't have part-time jobs. Particularly if you want, you know, you've lived in London, you know how expensive it is. Not only is it an expensive, extremely expensive city to live in, but when you have to spend, you know, huge amounts of chunks of your time studying rather than working, finding that money is very, very difficult to live on. So that's a real pressure that we're seeing from students that are having to work rather than having, having time to volunteer. But I also think it's there's a challenge for the charity sector. And well, one more thing I'll add actually about another challenge facing like volunteering and sort of civic engagement is that the charity sector is under like significant strain. And that means there's fewer volunteer managers, fewer like change makers who can create these like senses of community and bring people together to advocate and rally together to create better change. There's fewer of those people and you, those people are crucial if you want to create good volunteer programs create that energy for like people to come together and to volunteer for whatever activity or cause that might be so the charity sector has fewer of those people to help create that change and but also say like the charity sector's biggest challenge in wanting to work with people as volunteers is that they need to create flexible volunteering roles and i appreciate that is not easy to do the sort of days where someone Normally, a retiree would be like, I'll come and volunteer in your charity shop for three hours every Tuesday morning, and I'll do that for the next 15 years. Those days, are moving, we're moving beyond that. And, the, and particularly young people, they want flexible volunteering roles. They want project-based volunteer roles where they can kind of pick them up for a few weeks and then put them down and focus on something else. Um, and they want to be able to do them on a Tuesday at 8 p.m., um, and they haven't got any other responsibilities that time, and maybe a Saturday morning when they when they don't have to go to a physical space to maybe do that volunteering, they can do it remotely as well. And the charity sector needs to is you know lots of people are making big steps, but that does need to change within the voluntary sector to cater for the, for the demands that volunteers are making of them. Otherwise, they just won't volunteer. They won't go and do that. And it's not because they don't care; it's because they don't have the capacity. Mm-hmm. And given everything you said, which makes a lot of sense, I also wonder how to make volunteering sexy. I feel like with the amount of time that people spend on, I know I'm going to sound like an old curmudgeon here, but with all the time people spend scrolling on TikTok or, (laughs) you know, (laughs) or doing whatever thing that they're doing, numbing out on Netflix after, you know, a stressful day or whatever. In theory, there's, there is untapped capacity there, potentially, but it's a lot more appealing to do something else, it seems, with your time than to go out and serve others or this sort of thing. But what are some ways that even the Volunteer Center tries to make volunteering, like I said, sexy? Yeah, I don't know if we use the word sexy very often when we're talking about um, volunteering, but I'm, but I'm all here for it. Um <laughs> So, I mean, it's interesting that you say that. I mean, we do a lot of research into like who is and who isn't volunteering at LSE. And, and a, a really big number of those that don't volunteer, and um, first of all, had volunteered before they came to LSE. So they've done it before. 
And secondly, have considered, like the vast majority have considered volunteering since they've been at LSE, but then haven't gone on to do it. So we, through our work, we kind of feel like we're pushing it a bit of an open door, at least in that. That's the like, upside, is that we're pushing it an open door because we've got people who have done it before and they have thought about it. Uh-huh. They think uh-huh. it. So we're like, okay, that's good. Obviously, the sort of like glasses half empty view of that is like they haven't gone on and, and done it obviously but we do feel like we're pushing it a bit of an open door so i mean so we we try and make some of the roles which we do and interventions that we make through our programs basically as easy as possible and so we run a one-off volunteering program where you can just come on like we'll have a room on campus and we'll be like designing cards to send to children in the hospital through through a uk charity so you can just come along sit there for half an hour sort of get all the arts and crafts out and, and design cards and like draw pictures of Batman or whatever it might be that this child, you know, you think you might want to have in school. Uh, but then what we're obviously doing is we see that as like a launch point for volunteering. So the conversations which we're having with students during those times is like, you know, hopefully you've had fun today. Look, you really made a difference. Here's all the other ways in which you can get involved. Like, here's how we can make it as easy as possible for you. You know, we've got a charity coming onto campus next week. Why don't you just come along and have a chat with them? And, you know, volunteering is a habit, you know, so you need to ingrain that habit. So we, that's what we're trying to do with those, like, small and simple steps through the one-off volunteering program. Through the consultancy program, which we run as well, and run by my colleague Rosie, anyone can apply for it, but we aim the marketing and comms at those we know haven't volunteered before and or don't have professional experience. And we make it a, a sort of, like, as safe an environment as possible that we can. So we give like it's a 10 week project and we sort of say like you know, after week one this is some of the things you should have thought about after week two here you go and we create like fairly big teams of six or seven students so really like the commitment should be about three to five hours a week which isn't huge and again because it's done over 10 weeks you can always see the light at the end of the tunnel by the time you started so we're like yeah this isn't going to be a lifetime commitment that's okay um, but where are you going to take with this and so we are looking to to create these types of programs which mean that that people who may not who thought about volunteering and might be interested but haven't taken that step can do that as well. Two to the more like things we've been looking at from like structural reasons is that first of all we have a volunteering scheme for disabled students. So every year those that weren't volunteering, we normally had about like one to two percent of students who didn't volunteer and they said it was for disability or health reasons. Now one to two percent is obviously a small number, but we know that volunteering for those people could really like transform their university experience and provide like so many other opportunities as well obviously because i do believe in the power of volunteering to to transform oneself as much as transforming society so we've created a program where we'll work with those students on an individual basis if they apply work with the charities that we partner with to create really good accessible opportunities and educate the charities about how they can be accessible to those students. And obviously, hopefully the purpose is, and maybe this comes back to when do we want to shut ourselves down, in a few years we don't want to run a program about accessibility because all the charities would be fully accessible and disability wouldn't be a barrier for volunteering. But at the moment, we feel like we do need to give additional support to those students and help educate charities about how they can be accessible to, to students with disabilities. So that's one program which we run. And the other one, which, which we're sort of doing some work on now, we had an NSC alumni, someone called Abby, 
he, he did a research report for us over this past summer. She spent three months working with us, exploring how the volunteer centre can better collaborate with hidden students. I sort of put that in inverted commas. This is her terminology. Um, and this is effectively looking at BME students and those from different social economic backgrounds, so the majority of LSE students at LSE, and how gender also affects those that volunteer and look to engage with volunteering as well. I mean, she did some really in-depth interviews with students representing those groups about how we in the Volunteer Centre can support people and their engagement with the charity sector and the voluntary sector as well. And it's come back with some really, really interesting sort of recommendations for us. Unsurprisingly, when you do a research report, you often find sort of more questions in many ways. So we've got several recommendations for more research, which we're, <laughs> which we're interested in doing, we're looking to do that. But it also gave us, us like in the team, I mean, in particular as kind of the manager of that team, like real, really important food for thought. One of the most interesting aspects of that was one of the students she interviewed came up with this analogy around like and diversity. She is like, Having, having a table and just effectively bringing up more chairs to that table, but you haven't actually changed the table itself. It hasn't made it more inclusive. Um, I'm sure you've heard of that analogy before. And something which we want to do in the volunteer centre, and we want to speak to charities, is like really thinking, well, yeah, well, what is, our, what is our table in the volunteer centre? What does that look and feel like for all students at LSE? And how are we going to make sure that that table can feel inclusive for as many people as possible? that was one of the really interesting things which we found and the other thing which we also knew as well which I sort of alluded to already was about lots of LSE students particularly from these groups which Abby um, research is having that like lack of time to volunteer because they do have to work and that's a big thing so how can we find interesting impactful volunteering opportunities that are also flexible and not too time consuming that's kind of the challenge that we're going to set to our partners and to ourselves to create more of those roles and um, so that students, all students can access those volunteering opportunities, not just those who have the capacity to do so. For some students, I can also imagine how valuable it would be for them to have someone who looks like them or has a similar background to them to just talk about these issues with, to even talk about volunteering with and expanding the conversation around what that looks like. When I think, for example, about, oh, the stats about how many Black people adopt children, it's like, it seems like they're so unlikely to adopt children. Well, usually it's informal. So it's not in a way like the grandma doesn't go to the court and say, I'm legally adopting this child, but the grandmother is raising the child. And that's technically like an adoption. So it's how do we expand the conversation to shine a light on what volunteering or these other activities really really look like no no that gets us that's an incredible question how do we define volunteering and how do we define helping others in some way as well and where does that where does that is a gray area potentially between those two, two things about formal volunteering and just being a good person and contributing because some your next door neighbor needs their food being delivered like collected from the supermarket or whatever it might be do you tick that off as one hour of volunteering like i don't know and, and the sector's got an issue to figure that out as well or we all do This is a really interesting time in my own journey to be thinking about what it means to serve. And that includes volunteering, but as my conversation with Dave sort of hinted at at the end, that could include being neighborly or choosing to do it professionally. But this idea of I'm going to use my time 
and my talent to try to make an impact. I think it's such an interesting time because, first of all, I'm in a place where it's easy to look around and see need and want to be of service, but also to recognize I'm just one person. (laughs) So where do I fit in? How do I want to see myself fitting in? But beyond where I am in my immediate environment, in this moment in time, the world kind of seems like a flaming dumpster fire. And the issues that I see, which include but expand beyond what's going on in Gaza right now, what has gone on in Israel October 7th, it just, you know, where do I want to put my energy? How do I want to serve? What does this mean for my future career and just service that I want to do now and moving forward? I don't want to stay in a space of despair or powerlessness or hand-wringing. I want to believe and live into the belief that my only job is to use the resources that I have, the talents, the skills, the time that I have to create the vision of the world that compels me. I can't control the other stuff, but how do I move towards that vision? And I want to lift up the questions that Dave says he asks students when they come to him wanting to volunteer or wanting to be of service. I think those are great reflection questions for all of us and for me at this time. What cause am I passionate about? And then narrowing that down to one or two, because I can think of a lot of things that need to be addressed right now in this world. Two, what do I see myself actually doing? I pulled this quote from a sermon several years ago, but it's still as relevant today as at any other time. The need is not the call. Just because I see a need doesn't mean that I'm the right person to address it or that my skill sets and energy levels and all of those things actually align with doing a specific type of work. And then three, What is it that you want to achieve through your volunteering or your service? And as I sit here now, once again, feeling pretty frustrated and in some moments overwhelmed by what's going on in the world, I have to ask myself again and again, what is that vision that I want to work for or move towards? Not just what makes me angry, what makes me sad, So that's what I want to leave you with this week. And as always, if you're open to it, I would love to hear your responses, hear what comes up for you after having listened to this episode. And I just want to know how you're doing because as I've already mentioned a couple of times, the state of this world, man, how are you doing? How are you keeping yourself grounded and focused on that vision of the world that you want to create? All right, with that, thank you again for tuning in. And until next time, peace. Hey, before you go, if you want to, one, keep up with my blog, which I do post on sporadically, two, hear about my latest workshops and events, or three, learn more about my work as a facilitator and a coach, then I invite you to check out my website, www.gilmorefacilitationllc.com, and sign up for my email list. Until next time, remember, you're part of a beautiful community of people who want to change the world.